Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who have made great contributions to their fields, particularly in the biological sciences. This week's guest is Douglas Futuma, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolution at Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York. He's also a past president of AIBS. Let's go straight to that interview. Dr. Futuma, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Look forward to talking with you. Okay, so our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Um, well, uh, I guess that depends on, well, let's put it this way. Work in the life sciences is something that changed its meaning, of course, uh, over over the, the course of, of my life. Um, uh, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx, um, and very early in, in grade school, um, became absolutely intrigued with the Bronx Zoo, which is the largest zoo in the country, at least at that time, and became a habitué of the Bronx Zoo, uh, which is a really formative event in my life. Um, uh, I mean, I was there every day after school and so forth in, in grade school. By by the sixth grade, I was going there regularly to the point, to the point where a number of the the personnel, the zookeepers, and eventually one of the curators um, got to know me because I was so present all the time. And so, working in the life sciences is something that I wanted to do. Probably by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade, at that point, that it meant uh, becoming a zookeeper. Uh, that was my my model, right? And of course, as time went on, I eventually started reading more, um, uh, uh, talking, you know, talking with some of those people. And as I said, the one of the curators of the zoo, he was a PhD, James Oliver had a PhD in zoology and from the University of Michigan. Um, and eventually, I realized that that one could do professional biology; that there were people who were writing books and write, writing research uh, articles and so on. And so, I had some dim idea that I could be that I could be some kind of biologist. I still didn't really know what that meant um, until really late in high school and then in college when I realized that, well, there are, there are these, uh, these people called uh, you know, university or college professors and that they, uh, they teach biology and they, they're, they're, they're living biology. And so that, that ultimately then, I would say by late high school, it, it became very clear to me that that's what I wanted to do. And that I wanted, of course, then to major in biology in, in college and pursue that wherever that might take me. And I hope you won't mind if I take you back to the Bronx Zoo very briefly. Uh, were there any particular exhibits that, uh, you know, captured your imagination more so than others? Absolutely. Um, this is one of these things of sort of delayed gratification because um, I'd been going there and uh, looking at the, at the bird exhibits and the mammal exhibits, and the reptile house was closed for renovation. Um, and so that became this sort of, you know, I, be, I was totally fixated on the idea that I, eventually I would, I would get to see all the reptiles when they would finally reopen it. Um, and at that point, I had already been starting to keep a few pets, like a pet anolis lizard and some salamanders and so forth at home. Um, and when that finally opened, and it was, a, it was beautifully done, um, uh, that became that became my 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 locus of activities, and those those are the those were the personnel that I got to know best, and so on. So um, so that I I actually then nurtured the idea of being a herpetologist um, from probably you know whatever that might exactly mean from late grade school on through college actually, 
um, and went to graduate school with the intention of uh, working, of studying in the area and doing research in herpetology. What ultimately changed directions for you? Um, well, I, I, I did indeed go to the University of Michigan, uh, partly on the recommendation of James Oliver, the curator at the zoo, who, uh, who I just mentioned, who was a herpetologist. And, um, and I got there and there were, there were two herpetologists on the faculty there, um, one of whom unfortunately died during my first year. Um, and the other was, you know, a, a very nice person and, you know, certainly much, much, um, you know, admired and liked by his students. But I just, but the, the intellect, what I found intellectually then more exciting and appealing was, was really on, on the part of several of the other faculty, um, especially among the ecologists and, and a couple of, of other faculty there um, who were interested in, for example, the evolution of behavior. Um, and so that really, then I realized that, that really what, uh, what I was becoming more and more intrigued by were the larger general principles of, the, of evolution and, and ecology. And that that was really what I wanted to work in, and that that didn't necessarily mean being wedded to amphibians or reptiles. Um, and so that so then my my focus became at that point in my life less centered on a particular group of, of organisms, and more and more directed toward the larger ideas and theories and hypotheses. Uh, what would you say is the biggest surprise of your career? Um, well, uh, it, it depends. There, there are there are all kinds of surprises um, at, at, at different kinds of levels. Um, uh, I mean, in terms of my research, um, I guess we could say, well, something I certainly didn't expect um, was uh, at early on after I came to Stony Brook after graduate school, um, I had a research program going that involved um, studying the genetic variation in quite a variety of a number of different species of moths. Um, for an, an issue having to do with, I was interested in whether whether uh, genetic variation was related to the ecology of the species. And one of these species we discovered through the uh, through the the electro protein electrophoresis that we were using to study genetic variation, um, we discovered that most of the population reproduced um, asexually rather than sexually. And um, this was a total surprise. Um, I wasn't aware that this had been described in any member of this very large family of moths. Um, and this was, and, and so this was a real discovery. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, there aren't that many species of animals, especially among insects that, um, that reproduce asexually. And so, um, and so this, this was number one, very surprising. And number two, really satisfying in the sense that I could say that we we discovered a real piece of knowledge that hadn't been known before, you know, a, a real honest to God fact <laughs> that hadn't been known before. So that's kind of you know that's at the level of a research surprise. I think at the level of a of a career surprise, I guess I, I would have to say that um, just the very fact that I started being recognized enough to the point of, well, becoming president of AIBS and, and a number of other honors, uh, and really becoming recognized and known to a far, far greater extent than I had ever imagined when I was a young faculty member. And so obviously that's very gratifying and, and, and I feel humbled by it, really. But, um, uh, but that, yeah, that's a real surprise. This may actually um, go back a little bit to uh, that initial discovery, but what's the biggest difference between the way that science is conducted now and the way that it was when you first entered the field? Right. Yeah. I, there are several ways. Um, 
one is one is that there's a lot more what's being called big science going on, and um, in in other words, I mean a, a lot of the most significant publications are they're multidisciplinary and they involve collaborations among a large number of different people who make different kinds of contributions to you know to 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 the big picture. Um, to a far greater extent than, than than was the case when I was starting out. Um, a lot of this involves, for example, and you know what's being called big data. I guess you know that vast databases in you know whether it has to do with with um, the distribution, you know, geographic distribution of species or uh, genome sequences and so forth. Um, so um, working at, at a level of data that is vastly greater than it had been. And often, you know, these you know very diverse uh, collaborative uh, teams um, on you know on, on on you know very very big kinds of projects. So that is that is certainly a big difference, um, and that often then entails um, having skills that are that really have to be you know in some cases much more sophisticated in some ways than than when I was starting out. I mean, I think you have to in many areas of evolutionary biology. You really need to be very strong in um, in uh, in data analysis of various kinds, and really advanced statistical methods in computer modeling, and 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 a variety of analytical methods that are way beyond um, uh, what, what what I was trained in. Um, and then the other aspect is that the field has become very much larger. There are far more people uh, in the field. You know, the meetings of the Society for the Study of Evolution now are. You know, there are ten times the number of people attending than there than there were back in the seventies, probably more, and um, and it also means that uh, well, everything's more expensive and everything's more competitive. So I I think you know I I would think that in for, for that it could be a lot more of a challenge for a young person just getting out of graduate school now than than, than when I did. Do you ever find yourself longing for uh, for days past when a project could be, you know, perhaps more easily launched and undertaken by a smaller group of people or a smaller team? Well, well, um, I mean, that is really the level at which I've that that, that I've worked at pretty much all my life. Um, I mean, I, all of my papers. I mean, the, I'm, what I'm saying is nowadays, I you know, I look and I see much of the literature is. Um, in the primary research literature is being done by, as I say, these you know, large multidisciplinary uh, teams. Um, my own work, my own history of research publishing was very much uh, made my graduate students and maybe one or two other uh, you know, co-authors. Um, and so I've always felt much more comfortable in, if you like, the, the, the smaller arena of, of, of research. How have professional societies played a role in your career? And is there any particular large events that come to mind? I think professional societies are really important. Um, and the two major ways are, first of all, by many of them, you know, publishing journals, obviously. So that, you know, and I think that's immensely important. And that's been very important in my career because I've, I've held some, some editorial uh, positions in that respect. Um, but I think even more important is that they hold meetings that they serve as a basis for the formation of a research community. And I don't mean by that just networking and, you know, trying to work, you know, impress people and meeting them at meetings and trying to, try to, to, to impress them. What I mean is that really you, you, there, is a re that there is a research community of people who know one another, um, very often like one another at a personal level, um, communicate with one another, 
help one another in various ways, recommend one another for various kinds of tasks and positions and so on. And so I, and so I certainly have benefited from that. And, and I, I, think, I think many, many people, in, 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 at least in evolutionary biology have, and I think that's probably true in general. I think professional societies play a really important role and I would encourage any young, you know, a graduate student, postdoc, or whatever, someone starting their career, to be a member of at least one professional society. And you know, and sure, you know, sure, you can see you can see the journals online without paying for them, but that's not really the point. I think the point is really becoming a member of a community of researchers. And do you think that role has changed over time, or is it largely, you know, serving the same purpose that it, you know, that it always has? You mentioned that SSE has become larger in its its meeting attendance. Right. I think you know it's probably in some ways more difficult, but I think the same. I think the same dynamics basically, uh, you know, are, are, are playing out. Sure. And um, how about your time uh, working with AIBS? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, let's see. You know, it was that was something like what seventeen years ago or so, something like that. Thirteen years ago, uh, and. Um, uh, yeah, I, it was certainly rewarding for me. I don't know how much I did for AIBS. I think probably less than quite a number of, of other. Of other, uh, I was first on the, the board of directors, and then the, then the, uh, and then I was president, and then past president. And I, you know, and I, I know that some some other people in those positions have really did more for AIBS than than I did. Um, I, I did. There were a couple of things that I, I felt uh, well. Let me say, first of all, I really enjoyed it. I, there were very dedicated people uh, at the time. Uh, in particular, I worked a lot with with uh, the executive director, who was Richard O'Grady, and he was the one who was really making things happen. He was the one who was really effective, and it was wonderful to to work with him and and, and the and the other the other personnel. Um, I think the one the one uh, the one thing that I tried to do, and I, I hope it has had some lasting effect. Was to um, try to to um, uh, connect AIBS um, to other biological uh, uh, arenas. Um, so AIBS has been very much rep has represented mostly the more organismal and ecological end of biology, which is very much my my area of biology. Um, but at the same, you know, but at the same time, you have this, you know, much of the rest of biology, after all, which is cell biology, biochemistry, molecular biology, physiology, developmental biology, um, these more experimental uh, uh, fields, sort of uh, thought of them. And so, one of the things that that, um, that I that that I did, I sort of do as as president. Was uh, was connect with with uh, FASEB, F A S C B, the uh, the Federal uh, uh, Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, um, and actually it was it was it was coincidentally um, uh, someone there kind of reached out to me because they were interested in bringing some evolution into some, you know some some of their their programs. And uh, as exactly the same time that I was prepared preparing to reach out to them. Um, to suggest that we might collaborate on something uh, like the AIBS annual meeting, for which I, I, I was responsible for developing a program of, you know, of talks for that meeting. And I decided on the general theme of, of evolutionary biology and human health. Uh, this was in the, the quite early days of what was being called Darwinian medicine, connecting evolutionary biology to health issues. And this was clearly an area where there could be, you know, a joining together, a conjunction 
of evolutionary and ecological biologists with molecular cell biologists, biochemists, and so forth. Um, and so in the, and so and actually that symposium for that year then um, to some extent was a product of the of the, uh, the, the the crosstalk between us between these two these two large umbrella societies. Um, I think that continued for a while. I'm I have to be I have to say I'm not sure that it had that any that it has become a, a permanent affiliation with one another. But uh, that was something that I tried to do. I've always been very, I think a hallmark of my way of thinking in my career has been the whole, the whole quest for synthesis, the whole idea that everything, really everything should fit together and we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be competing with one another. We should be seeing how the various kinds of biology and approaches to biology um, inform one another and form a, you know, and form a, a coherent uh, intellectual whole. You know, uh, moving on from perhaps just the uh, the AIBS specific focus, but um, what event from your career do you think will be long remembered into the future? Um, uh, I think you told me that this that the, this question might come up, and and all I could say was that I was reminded of of uh, a short passage in Hamlet, um, where Hamlet is ruining the fact that his you know that everyone seems to be perfectly jolly despite the fact that his father was murdered uh, just a couple of months before, and um, and Hamlet says there's hope a great man's memory may outlive his life by half a year. Uh, <laughs> in other in other words. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't suppose that I'm going to be remembered long into the future, that any of the work will be long into the future. And it's, it is, I mean, something that's actually pretty distressing is, you know, ask, ask a graduate student, uh, what the accomplishments were of, you know, name some famous names from, from the forties or the fifties or the sixties. And, you know, you're likely to, to draw a blank. Um, I, I think that, um, um, I think I've done a few things that I think are have been, you know, I think useful and possibly important in their in their time. Um, uh, whether or not I will be in any sense remembered for them, I, I don't know. Um, I've had one or two ideas that I've published that I hope will will find find you know, be will turn out to be useful and, and uh, ideas about, for example, the. The importance of, of speciation as a way of sort of, of locking in uh, changes in, in in characteristics of organisms so that they don't sort of become lost in in in, in time. Um, uh, I think some of the work that I've the experimental work we've done, especially with with leaf beetles, was designed to ask whether there are cons whether there are limitations on genetic variation that could uh, direct the possible path of adaptation into certain paths rather than others. In other words, whether there are genetic constraints on the degree to which a species can adapt to in any variety of ways, or whether they would be constrained in only very, you know, very, very special ways. Um, here, what I was interested in is the the ability of insects to adapt to different kinds of plants. And finding that, well, no, they have genetic variation that makes adaptation to certain plants more likely than to others, and I think that that's a useful contribution. Um, I think that um, um, uh, I, I think though that I'm probably best known kind of for just sort of you know synthesizing ideas and putting them together in the form of my textbook 
in its various editions and quite a number of other things that I've written, of really sort of trying to take an, an overview of how things fit together. And um, I'm obviously not the only person who does that, um, but I think that I think that that's been useful. Um, and then finally, uh, one issue that I feel quite strongly about, and I'm one of a number of people who have been pretty vocal about this, is uh, the importance of taxonomy and natural history. In other words, the importance of really knowing, of there being people who really know the diversity of organisms, who the species are, and more or less what they do. Um, I think that if we did not have entomologists and ornithologists and systematic botanists and people of this kind who are naming species, who can tell you what species you're studying, you know, and, and, um, and, and know the basic life histories and geographic distributions and phylogenetic relationships of species, if you didn't have them, then pretty much all of ecology and evolutionary biology and most of biology would be uh, would be uh, severely severely uh, reduced and, and 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 impoverished. Yes, and that's often work that that goes rather unheralded in comparison with some other fields. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, you know, I've I've written a few a few uh, things, few papers on this that I think have been a little influential. Could you speak a bit about the role of outreach in your career? Um, you know, I, I know that you've written for books for general audiences as well, particularly on um, evolution and making the case therefore. Oh, well, I mean, no, I mean, obviously, you know, you can have a perfectly, you know, most, I would probably, probably most research scientists do have very successful and rewarding careers without doing much of that. But I think that certainly as a community, and here we go back to the idea that there's a community of evolutionary biologists, there's a community of ecologists and so on. As a community, it's enormously important to, to, um, to, to reach out, to educate, to inform the public, to help people think scientifically and logically and, and, and to some extent skeptically um, about what's going on. We are living that right now, okay? Here we are in the midst of this horrid, horrid coronavirus outbreak in which you know, have scientists you know, who, who, know, who know what they're talking about. They know about the biology of viruses. They know about how, 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 how um, uh, 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 pathogens like this spread. They know the dynamics. They, you know, and some of that has been um, has been essentially you know diminished or improved by some some political figures. You have the leading the leading disease epidemi epidemiologist in the United States who has received death threats from people who think that he is saying that you who just won't accept what he's saying about the need, for example, for self-isolation and social distancing. So here we are living living through an episode in which science is all important. Okay. And there has to be, it seems to me, within society, a respect for science, a respect for expertise, a respect for people who are responsible ultimately for the discoveries, for understanding the foundations for all of the discoveries that are made in medicine and in engineering and in, you know, and, uh, and in, in, in architecture, in every aspect of our lives. We are dependent for food, for transportation, for, for everything. We are dependent on understanding that has come from the basic sciences. Okay. And I think it is so important that people realize that and that they not just pick and choose what science they're going to believe and what and which science they're going to belittle. 
whether it have to do with climate change or how you should behave during an epidemic. Okay? And so I think it is the responsibility of the scientific community and the various you know, scientific communities of ecologists, evolutionary biologists, epidemiologists, bi you know, biochemists, it, it is their responsibility to educate, you know, to reach out, to educate in whatever ways they think they can, they can be effective to the public and, 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 and help to create an informed, republic, uh, an informed public that respects science, you know, which is not always the case. And that's a very incredibly important message, and I suppose now more than ever. It is. I can't. I. I, I feel. I feel so strongly about this. And it's one of the things that you know. Uh, uh, when, you know, when I was president, and you know, I wrote a couple of, of editorials um, for our journal, and one of them was was to this effect. It was to the effect that you know you can't just pick and choose which science you're going to believe. You know, um, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's like, you know, like Al Gore talked about the inconvenient truth of climate change. You know, you can't just decide I'm not going to believe the climate, the climate scientists, you know, even though every aspect of my daily of my daily life is dependent on what is ultimately the production of scientific, of scientific knowledge. Absolutely. Um, and, and this may feed into the next question, or, or perhaps not, but um, what's the most frightening or intimidating thing that's happened to you in your professional capacity? Uh, no, I, I mean, I guess I've been through some things that I suppose people might have found threatening, like some of the qualifying exams I had to face as a graduate student. Um, um, but um, I have to say that actually I, in a way, almost uh, looked forward to them because they forced me to learn about things that I didn't know. Um, so I, 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 I guess I, I, I can't say that I have any particular uh, memory of something that has uh, really frightened me. Yeah. Well, no, that's a, that's a very enlightened view toward exams. Um, but uh, what are you working on right now? Um, well, as, as, as I mentioned at the, as, or at the start, I'm an emeritus professor. I, I, so I retired from teaching and other university responsibilities um, about, well, it's a little year and a half ago or so. Um, I'm still professionally active, and I am glad to say um, uh, I'm uh, on several editorial boards, and that takes a bit of a bit of time of PNAS, and I'm the editor of the Annual Review of Ecology, Evolution, and Systematics. Um, but those are kind of episodic duties, um, and uh, I'm not doing research anymore. Uh, but I am doing I'm doing a lot of writing uh, at the moment. I'm writing not a scientific, uh, not, 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 not science per se, but at the moment I'm writing a book um, about basically the evolutionary biology of birds. I'm a I'm a very serious birder. I've been a birder since I was something like 12 years old and and have gotten back into that more and more in, in the, over the last 20 years, um, going all around the world looking at birds and so forth. and. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, when I see a bird, usually I, I view it not just for its aesthetic value, but also I view it from my position as an evolutionary biologist. And very often I know something about it or I think of a question about it that, um, that um, other birders or people who just like birds might, might be interested in. And so this is, this is a book that's intended for people who are, are not scientists but are enthusiastic about birds. And it's about various kinds of topics that I think I can I can uh, sort of uh, address as an evolutionary biologist that they might find interesting. Um, and so that's that's a book that's uh, you know, nearing the end of, of writing the text of that. And then um, 
very soon I'll be gearing up uh, with my co-author, uh, Mark Kirkpatrick at the University of Texas, um, for the next edition of our textbook, uh, Evolution. Um, this will be edition five under that title. Um, there were three previous editions under a different title, Evolutionary Biology. Um, and this is, you know, this has been one of the things that I think has been a, you know, some, somewhat useful contribution to, to education in, in evolutionary biology. And, um, and I'm looking forward to doing that because, of course, every time I have uh, had to revise and produce another edition, uh, it, means that I, that it means that I learn a great deal more than I knew before. And, uh, and I, I, my entire life has been spent as much enjoying just the process of learning as the process of in any way contributing to what it is that people learn. What's the experience been like of shepherding uh, such a you know, valuable and widely used textbook over the years? When do you know that it's time to uh, put out the next edition? And what's that, how does that process work? <laughs> That, that that usually comes from the publisher because we go because the publisher would you know ideally like to have a new edition every two years you know so that right. students aren't buying used copies. Um, so I say that I say that with a smile and a bit of you know um, uh, not not totally seriously but some semi seriously. Um, but I think that you know I, I mean at, at at some point you realize that um, sure there are some areas of the field that haven't changed all that much you know we pretty much we pretty much know what's what you know that's been solved but there are other other areas in which there are enormous advances happening you know happening every year in evolutionary biology as they are throughout biology as a whole um, and you know the most obvious of course in recent years has been genomics uh, and and this has. This has been this has transformed you know many areas of evolutionary studies you know from phylogeny to population genetics to understanding the, the genetic basis of adaptations um, and so and that continues of course at a huge rate um, so that you know so that uh, the the variety of interesting things there are to write about in terms of our our our, our knowledge of of the genetic evolution and the and the phylogenetic history of organ of all kinds of organisms and their all kinds of interesting characteristics, you know, life histories and behaviors and morphological features, all kinds of features. Um, all this information has come has been, you know, coming out in in vast waves, and. Um, uh, and the you know, the challenge, of course, is to pick among it. Uh, the you know the you know, what, what what are you going to choose among all of these wonders that are, that have been revealed to us year in the year after year, and so um, and so probably on the order of every four or five years, uh, you, you can say that yeah sure it's it's probably time to revise uh, because at least some areas are going to will have changed so much that um, that what you wrote four years ago is wasn't wrong necessarily, but it's nowhere near as complete as, as, as our current state of knowledge. And if you'll indulge another publishing question, um, you know, because you've served on so many editorial boards and as an editor um, in so many prominent roles, you know, how do you feel that the role of journals has changed over the years or uh, the task of a journal editor has changed over the years? Is it, is it different or largely the same? I, I, my impression is largely the same. Um, uh, the as a journal editor, um, 
uh, I think I think it's a job that's gotten very very much more difficult because, as I've just said, you know there are so many more people in the field. The volume of publishing, numbers of, of manuscripts that are turned out by the great in greatly increased numbers of researchers um, has in, you know has just increased tremendously. Um, when I was editor of Evolution uh, from 1981 to 83, uh, I, you asked earlier what's the most surprising thing in my career. Probably, probably the most surprising thing in my career was being asked to, in 1980, um, <laughs> I was just, you know, what was I, I was 38 years old or so, uh, to be the editor of the leading journal in the field. I mean, that was a surprise that just blew me away. Uh, you, you, you could insert that back into, into, the, into that other question. Um, uh, but, the, but I was about, what I was about to say was that as editor with one assistant, I essentially handled. You know, I had there were several associate editors who you know who I would send out the manuscripts to review, and it was this very very small number of people handling all of these manuscripts that came in for for the journal during the course of the year. You know, at this point, you would you you literally need ten times as many people you know, to 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 you know. Um, and so, um, and so, being an editor, I think, certainly means being at a further distance from most of the individual submissions, most of the individual manuscripts that are published, um, because you simply have to have to you know, parcel out the work among so many other people, um, uh, because there are so many manuscripts. Um, but I think the function of journals has got to be this has got to be the same. It's got it's got to be to basically make make the, 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 you know, the best of research available to as many people as possible. Um, and I realize now that there are, there are, there are larger issues about, about you know, open source and, and other kinds of publishing issues that I honestly am not really in touch with. Um, and and there'd be other people who could speak better to, to that aspect of how, of how, what the best vehicles are for actually conveying scientific research to the broadest uh, uh, audience. And uh, if you were entering grad school today, um, would you do anything differently? Would you study any other subjects? Or would, your, would you seek a trajectory that was much like the one that you took? Uh, I, I, hope I, I hope I would um, uh, seek a trajectory that was a hybrid <laughs> of what you just referred. Some of, what I, some of what I did and some of what I didn't. Um, um, the uh, I, I mentioned earlier the importance of taxonomy and natural history, and I think that for for people going into the fields of evolutionary biology, ecology, animal behavior, the more organism-oriented aspects of uh, whole organism-oriented aspects of, of biology, um, I do think that having some familiarity with some group of organisms, you know, is is, is gives you it gives you a basis to think from to work from that I think is really important as well as the possibility that you will contribute to that knowledge. So I wouldn't want to minimize that at all. And I, I, I do think that really every student in, in, in my general area of biology should have some such knowledge. Um, what I would do differently from, 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 from what I personally did as a graduate student is, well, I would say that my greatest limitations are that I was always pretty kind of phobic about learning to do things with my hands. Uh, I was really great at reading and interpreting and, uh, and using words and e even 
occasionally having an idea. Um, but in terms of, of laboratory technique and so forth, um, I, I, I was just, I never, I was not very, not very good at that. And that has been one of the things that I think has been my greatest limitate, one of my greatest limitations. And I do think it's really important for students to be on top of techniques. And those may be laboratory techniques of how you actually do, you know, work with DNA or whatever it may be, or especially analytical techniques. Um, and this then brings me to the second, which is that I've never been very strong in math. Um, uh, having a you know, having a strong foundation in mathematics, especially then in uh, statistics and broader in and broader areas of uh, and of data analysis of, of analytical methods for for data, especially the new kinds of data that we, that that biologists now have access to, with these you know huge databases and you know very elaborate. Um, uh, uh, you know, analytical methods for dealing with that kind of data. Um, and so I think it's very important to be on top of, of, um, of, uh, of, of thinking, you know, the, the methods that you need to actually, uh, to actually be effective in, in realizing your, your ideas, your research ideas. And I think you've largely just answered it, but any additional advice for young scientists? Um, Become a member of a professional society, I think, for the reasons that I said before, because you should be thinking of yourself as a member of a community, and and you should be getting to know your your, your fellow members, uh, both the older ones and your peers, um, and then eventually, and then you know younger ones as well, of course. Um, uh, so I do think I do think that that is that that is really important. Um, the the being a graduate student it seems to me that you there's a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a bit of an issue how how do you use your time most effectively uh, on the one hand you should be spending some of that time learn learning what you don't know so that might be becoming acquainted with a group of organisms or becoming really adept in some of the analytical methods and so forth um, so you should be learning but you also need to be producing because uh, because it's a very uh, as I say a more and more competitive kind of world now, and your PhD advisor, if, if, if you're following a PhD, um, may very well be pressing you to come up with research ideas or to collaborate either with your advisor or with other students to publish papers, um, and so that that is the reality is that getting those papers out even as a graduate student or very soon afterward. Is uh, is is all important, and uh, and you have to take that seriously from the start. You know your 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 time your time is valuable, and you have to be using it to accomplish quite a few things. Well, that sounds like an excellent set of recommendations on which to close, uh, Doctor Futuma. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.